Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Security Podcast in Silicon Valley. I'm here today with a very special guest, David Gurley. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. And the way you pronounce my first and last name is perfect. I am so happy about that. I'm really good at butchering names. <laughs> David brings to the table so much experience. Um, you started your career. Uh, it looks like at Digital Equipment Corporation in France. You were a software engineer there. Then you moved to France Telecom. You were an R&D engineer. And then ETSI, you were a technical officer there. Vocal Tech, the VP of Strategic Alliances. And then you moved into Microsoft. And at Microsoft, you were actually Director of Program Management of Real-Time Collaboration and Communication. Um, and that was back in 2002. So right as soon as the, right after the dot-com bust, I suppose, and, and yeah. we're getting serious about communications. Well, the thing is, I'm very good at missing the, you know, the, the rise of the stock and arriving at the, at the end of the rise. So I arrived at Microsoft at the height of Microsoft stock. And after I joined, it just went down and never recovered. So. Oh, I, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, <laughs> okay. And then after that, you were at, we were with Thompson Reuters. You were the global head of collaboration services and head of sales in trading Asia. Awesome. And then you were the general manager at Skype for business. Uh, this is now in Palo Alto. And at this point, you know, I think your career really started to take off. You were with Avaya, uh, VP of corporate strategy, and then you started your own company. You started Perzo Inc. Yeah. You were the founder, CEO of Perzo. Uh, that chugged along for two years and was bought by Symphony Communications. You were the founder, CEO of Symphony Communications, which has a very special place in my heart because I was, I, I joined Symphony Communications. This is where we met. Yep. Well, I have to interrupt you right now just for a minute because, you know, I was thinking about this podcast and I said, what am I going to do to John to embarrass him a little bit? And I just want to say that I am so grateful for everything that you've done for Symphony. You made Symphony secure. You made Symphony strong. And thanks to the great work that you've done and along with your teammates, um, you managed to uh, break through the, uh, the impenetrable walls of Wall Street and, uh, and became the standard there. So, uh, thank you, John. David, you're, you're very kind. It was a solid team effort and we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for all of the hard work everyone had put into Perzo and then followed through with Symphony and a lot of, you know, Symphony Communications was where I, I had the first opportunity to really lead a team technically. And it was an amazing experience. And I have all of the gratitude and humility in the world for having had those, those opportunities and made those connections in a spectacular, uh, adventure that we shared together, I would say, David. Yep. So thank you. The, the gratitude is, is a two-way street. Um, and after Symphony, you're a founder, a board member of Symphony Communications. You got involved with a lot of advising yep. and creation corporation because Cosmian. Yep. Cosmian. Yep. Check your uh, advisor and board member there. Quest Partners, uh, founder and executive chairman at Quest, Rothschild and Co. 
a senior yep. advisor with Rochefort. That's an investment banking. Yep. And F24AG, your chairman of the board there. Uh, you took a role with the government of France. The, you're an ambassador to France for 2030. Yep. Amazing. And now you've, you've done it again, I guess, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. You're the founder and executive chairman at Hives. Yeah, one, one more time. One more time. I mean, is it, is it something that you're really going to walk away from ever? Is it just, it's just too fun to keep doing these things, right? Exactly. And, and I think that the, 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 you mentioned the keyword, the fun. You really have to have that passion because things get gritty. Things get difficult. Uh, you have to reach down deep and find that drive and just not just plow forward for your own sake, but as a leader, you have to inspire everyone else around you to, to stick with it, stick through it. Right. Yep. Uh, so was there any part of your childhood that, that, you know, getting into our first question, was there any part of your childhood that really makes you, you, or that was like very influential? Um, maybe a, a unique experience that, that gave you some of that grit or some of that drive. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, it, I'm not sure if it's only one thing, John, but, uh, I, I grew up in the Middle East, I was born there and parents, uh, were diplomats and, um, and I, I grew up, you know, in the streets of Lebanon, Syria and Turkey and, uh, played with, uh, the kids of my age, um, from, from those countries and, uh, you know, growing up, uh, playing football, soccer, uh, and all type of, you know, games that we used to play, mm -hmm. I always was this, this kid who wouldn't do things like the other kids would, um, like kind of the oddball, um, and, uh, and, but I never felt, um, wrong doing it. You know, I always felt that, you know, um, I was doing what I want to do. And if, if it was against what the group was doing, it was okay for me and, and, and vice versa. So, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people will always call me like this, you're special or, uh, you know, uh, you don't listen and, uh, you know, you, you are uh, top headed and all of those things. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, I got Teflonized, you know, the Teflon in terms of this thing that never sticks. Yeah. yeah it never sticks to you, huh? Nothing, yeah. nothing ever sticks, just like Teflon. Really. Yeah, exactly. It's just like very early on in my, in my life. And, um, and I, I have one memory, um, that I can relate to. I was 13 years old. Um, we were in Turkey and there was a military coup in Turkey in 1980. And, um, um, it was curfew, but you know, who would respect the curfew when you're a 13 year old and there is nothing to do home. Mm -hmm. And so I just got out and, uh, managed to convince few of my friends to get out as well, mm -hmm. um, by just yelling at them, hey, you know? um, and then we started playing outside. I don't know what we were playing, but eventually, uh, a military, um, truck came by and, uh, saw us and stopped us. And, uh, so we should ask her for you. We can't go out. Right. So they just aligned us like that. <clears throat> so and they, uh, I was the like, youngest. Oh, you were the youngest. Wow. I was the youngest. I'm sorry. I was the youngest. And, um, and they start hitting us. 
like from the oldest all the way to me. Like, mm. and, uh, you know, um, it was my turn. I was the youngest, you know, I thought I might escape it because I was the youngest and I was the last one out of the, I don't know how many of you were, it just didn't matter. And, you know, I just got a big hit on my face and a big hit in my stomach. Uh, mm. and, um, and, and, you know, I just, I just looked her up and I said, okay, are you done? You know? And so, uh, so I guess, um, this, uh, this rebellious attitude that, that I have, um, the fact that I make my own rules, um, was probably in me. Um, and, uh, the environment in which I grew up, um, helped me to, you know, further, um, uh, sharpen that edge that I had and, uh, it never left me. And I think it's, it's one of my, um, qualities, uh, but it's uh, your secret, yeah. your secret strength. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And I'm sorry that you, you went through that. I, I believe firmly that it's the experiences that we go through that sort of shape who we are and give us the opportunity to rise to the occasion. And it sounds like you really took it upon yourself to be yourself, even in the face of great adversity. Yeah, because it was the only way, you know, I was a foreigner, right? You know, if you think about it, I was a foreigner trying to integrate. Um, and so I, I faced racism all my youth. Um, you know, I was a minority. I was the only white kid playing in those places, only white and only non, uh, you know, Muslim. So, um, so, you know, you had no choice but to deal with it. Right. I, you had to deal with it a very formal time in your childhood. And, uh, it sounds like you made the most of it and it, and it really like, uh, shaped you to be able to handle like tough situations and, and, and. Yeah. But also learn respect, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the thing you need to understand when, when you are in a situation like that is the fact that where you were born, um, affects a lot your future and, um, affects who you are a lot. And, uh, and so rather than judging people for who they were, I was trying to understand the differences and respect those differences. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, even though I was this, um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this old kid, because I, um, always respected their differences and tried to understand their differences and try to leave their differences, uh, you know, eventually I was welcomed. So, uh, so it, it, it was, you know, a good learning for me. That, that's really heartwarming, actually, to be different, to be perceived as different, and then to be welcomed into the group, right? Yeah, it does. I have to admit that it sounds very similar to experiences that I had uh, coming out. This guy in Minnesota, in a very conservative environment, um, you, you're forced to deal with differences and uh, things that you can perceive as adversity, but uh, they do shape you into who you become. Right. So yeah, of course. No, no, no. I, 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 adversity is a very good trainer. You know, if you have the right support. If you do. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, being alone is not easy. I mean, some, some exceptional people can do it all by themselves, but you know, if you have the right support from family, friends, um, you know, that, that helps a lot. That is absolutely critical. I'll, I'll come back to these differences. Um, through uh, an, an experience I want to tell with you, I'm going to share with you. Uh, oh, please. We were in Beirut, in the capital of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. 
And I was much younger than, you know, uh, maybe eight, nine years old, but enough to remember. And uh, it was the civil war of mm -hmm. Beirut. Mm. And um, the buildings were destroyed, the roads were destroyed, and um, we were uh, walking with my dad on the street, going somewhere. I don't remember where. Mm -hmm. As we walk by across the street, um, there is this kid, older than me, but a kid. Mm -hmm. um, he's got an AK-47 on his shoulders. You know, this, this Kalashnikov thing. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, me being young, um, just got scared. And, uh, and I was hid myself, you know, behind my dad and, uh, my dad said, what, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, you look at this kid, you know, he's, he's a, he's a bad person and, uh, and he might kill us. And, uh, and he said, uh, well, how do you know he's a bad person? Well, I said, because, you know, he's got a gun. Right. And, uh, yes, but, uh, imagine you were born in his shoes mm. and you were defending your home. What would you do? Right. And, uh, and that for me was the, um, somehow the defining, uh, uh, experience in intolerance and, uh, and in understanding diversity, um, and not judging, you know, not, not judging the, the book by its cover, you know, it's trying to read it and understand it and give time. And, um, and so I think, I think that would be, um, the right answer to your question. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I can feel the empathy. It's a skill that you can develop, right? And uh, oh yeah, anybody can develop it. You just need to love the human nature. <laughs> Not be too surprised by the unexpected, but you know, one of the tricks that I've always used was, you know, when there's a disagreement, I assume two things. I assume that everyone. Uh, bring something to the table that people are smart. And it's, it's my job as a listener to see yep. that in, in other people that are at the table. And it's also my job to play with uh, a sense of perspective and empathy to answer the question, okay, why is this the right thing to do? Like what set of values are driving the discussion so that this is the right thing to do? And to drop my set of values and really try to pick up another set of values that might actually be a better, a better set where the, the problem or the disagreement is not a problem or disagreement anymore. You know, exactly. it, it sounds like you do a very, you were, you were put in a situation where you were doing exactly the same thing, except it was someone with a gun, a kid with a gun yeah. who was just defending his country perhaps, or his, his family or his loved ones. Right. Exactly. I'm sorry that you have to go through those things, but it sounds like it really helps shape who you are today. And I think that's a pretty spectacular person. So I think so too. So would you like to share our listeners a little bit about Hive? Yeah. Um, well, Hive is a distributed peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, cloud solution. Um, it is unique in its, uh, approach to build an alternative cloud to the, to the ones that, you know, we use every day. Um, uh, it has. Um, the ability to uh, take the um, end-use resources of uh, computers around the world and, and, and put them in a virtual operating system, and from which 
we can offer and we offer storage and compute services. So that's uh, really the nature of that. And um, I had the idea actually when we were at Symfony in 2018, so the bills of uh, Amazon and Google on which, you know, we were building and, and running our infrastructure, I was going mad. And uh, the reason I was going mad, not because, you know, the bills were going up, obviously they were going up, but because I knew that there was a better way of doing it because I used to run Skype for business. You mentioned it earlier and Skype was entirely peer-to-peer. So no infrastructure and no data centers. So we were using everyone's computers, you know, to do what servers do. And, um, and so I said to myself, there's really no technical reason that we couldn't do the same thing with, um, um, you know, with the cloud. So I went to the board, uh, and I said, okay, guys, you know, I know I'm running Symfony, uh, but I have another idea. And, uh, and that's really what I want to do here is the reason why. And, uh, so, um, and I want to have the right to, to start doing it, uh, because I had to ask permission. It was in my contract. And, uh, so yeah. they gave the permission to me and they, some of them even said, okay, we're going to invest in it. You know, we like the idea. Wow. And, uh, but you know, life happens. Uh, we, we didn't have, I didn't have time. I just, Symfony just absorbed uh, me so much, uh, that I couldn't put a, um, a minute on, uh, on this new initiative, which wasn't called Hive in my mind back then. And then, uh, it's only when I decided to step down, uh, you know, last, uh, you know, 2021 that, uh, I said, okay, what am I going to do next? And, uh, and, and that uh, became the beginning of, uh, the journey for, for Hive for me. Um, so, um, we can obviously talk more about how, but uh, that's kind of how it started and it's kind of what we do. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you are catching me at a very opportune moment because literally yesterday we released our first version. So, wow. Congratulations. That's huge. It's good. It's huge. That is amazing. So that's, that was Wednesday, September 28th. And so when you say the first version is released, um, can I try it out? Can I yeah. it? I can participate in. Uh, you can, if you have a Windows machine, uh, we don't have a Mac version yet. I'll, I'll send you the Mac version. I'm running Mac myself. Sure. Um, the thing is that, you know, we haven't gotten, you know, this better than anyone else, all the signatures, uh, from Apple like, approved, you know, all the, all the developers. So when you install, yeah, stuff. When, you, yeah. when you install high, you get all these warnings. And so you need to mute those warnings to install, you know, cleanly. So since, uh, you know. Uh, you know, all of this better than I do. Security, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I got to loop in our listeners, like what's going on with Apple. They, Apple is pretty famous for being a closed ecosystem, yeah. meaning they do try to control what goes into it. But on your desktop computer, it's been pretty open, but they're slowly introducing this feature called Gatekeeper and a developer program. And so all software that runs on America is, is supposed to be signed with a, a private key that chains back up to a root of trust that, that goes through their developer program so that they can detect things that were not developed by a, a person that has an official relationship with Apple uh, through the developer program. And it sounds like they're, they're making great strides. I don't follow their program very closely, but it sounds like they're starting to get to the point where error messages become like, um, 
almost like barriers to entry. Oh, it is because the error message is actually incorrect. You know, it says the program is broken. It cannot work. I mean, you know, the, but what you see when you try to make such an install, uh, is if you are an, an inexperienced end user, you're going to say, okay, I'm not going to install something that doesn't work. Of course, of course. But when you send me the, you know, the Mac version, I'm just going to cook through all of those warnings. I'll be like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Uh, don't worry. Like, I'll, no, no, I'll, 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 I'll like this. There's a special command line interface, uh, you know, a few strings, which I'll send you, which will mute all of those things. So don't worry about that. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to run that. And, uh, I have plenty of spare compute, so I'll Great. be interested to see like if, um, Maybe the next big SaaS service can be uh, deployed on top of Hive and part of it can run on my local machine here in San Francisco and um, maybe even use some of the storage because I have four terabytes of storage on this, this machine. I don't use all of it, not by any stretch of the imagination. So do you monetize? So as a, as a contributor to the network, is there any sort of reward that I get for participating? Exactly. You get uh, a reward. Um, at this time, uh, the reward is what you share, you get in exchange. So if you share one terabyte, you'll get one terabyte from the network, uh, which you can use to back up your files. Um, and, uh, we don't make money, um, no, we don't plan to make money out of what I call this pure exchange. Uh, having said that, if you want to consume less than, you know, what you share, we ought to pay you. So we're going to actually pay you, uh, a, um, a monthly fee, uh, because we're going to use, um, the end use capacity that you have, uh, for people who want to consume more than what they share. And, um, and so our goal will be to kind of in a whole safe fashion, buy all these, uh, compute and storage capacity. And then set it at the same price, but with a 5% transaction fee mm. back to the users who want to consume more than the exchange. I, I think that's, that's awesome. It's almost like taking the business model of Uber and distributing it across, uh, the folks that just have spare resources and spare time, uh, help connect people looking for rides with folks able and willing to give rides, except we're doing it in the compute space. And yep. instead of centralizing all of the stuff like AWS has done, like, you know, Google GCP has done where there's a big company behind it and the yellow taxi cab shows up and you have to call one specific phone number, it goes to central dispatch. Like this is the decentralized model of compute and storage. Exactly. Very nice. Very nice. Um, I, I, I like to, you know, ask your permission to use what you just described in my, like uh, next hive introduction video, uh, because it is, it is so well said and so well, you know, metaphor, you know, I hope you'll, you'll give me that. Oh, please. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, um, I, I'm just, I'm just rephrasing uh, what you've shared. And so this, all of the content is yours a hundred percent. Like, please do. I, I'd be very flattered. <laughs> um, so what's been your best day along your journey so far with hives? 28th of September, 2022, <laughs> the release of the first version. Um, yesterday, yesterday was your best day. Amazing. 
Yeah. You're still floating on the clouds. But... I am. I am still, but distributed cloud, you know? <laughs> well, it's not it's the like that. Right. Not a centralized cloud, the, the <laughs> distributed cloud that we're floating on. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, the reason it's the best day, um, you are a software engineer, you know, training and, you know, you know how hard it is to converge the first release. You know, you have to not only converge the code, but the, the engineering, you know, back office things behind it. Um, yeah. Together, the support system, the release system, the tracking system, the data collections. I mean, there are everything that, that comes, that needs to come together. It's still enough effort. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, What's really beautiful about this and why I'm so happy is not that it's the best product ever. I honestly think it's not. I know the first version um, uh, is of Hive is something we look at, you know, uh, as, oh, why did we release this thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a, few, a few releases from now. But it is actually how everything comes together and the team comes together. And, and suddenly, you know, the, 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 the humans, the, you know, um, you know, just, just merge with each other in, in, in this, in this common goal in, in ways in which no word, uh, no process, uh, no rule can describe. It just happens. And uh, I've seen this many, many times all the time. I mean, many, many times. And in every time I have goosebumps from it because, because I think it represents some of the best of humanity, mm -hmm. this ability to come together for a common cause and to produce something that didn't exist before. It's creation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that entirely. I remember when we first released the public version of Symphony and, um, there were cigars involved and yes, at the end of the day, they're in the back of the, out back behind the offices. It was a celebration of the greatest uh, type. And I'm sure that, uh, it, there at Hive, uh, you're, you're broadcasting from New York, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm sure there's celebrations happening there too. Okay. So how about the worst day that you've had on your journey so far at Hive? Um, so <laughs> there was a moment, um, was in October, November last year. I, uh, so you have to put things in perspective, right? I did symphony. Um, now I am raising, uh, for Hive, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are, there are things that I absolutely want to do differently than I have done in symphony because I have learned few lessons. And, um, and one of the things that I absolutely want to do was that I am going to have, um, majority control over some key decisions, no matter how much I own in the company. Okay. And so that basically means that, you know, my shares will have more voting rights than investor shares. Right. Okay. Which I did not have at some point. And so, um, so, you know, I'm negotiating with investors around that. And it's a, it's a very, very difficult topic. Like you cannot imagine. And, uh, because they don't want to, they don't, nobody wants to lose control. Um, so, um, but, but somehow, um, you know, through grit, uh, through, uh, empathy, <laughs> through negotiation, I managed to get the lead investor to agree. 
to 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 this. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty happy with it, and I'm saying, okay, we're it. You know. So uh, I received the final draft, um, and um, I was in Hong Kong at that time. So uh, it gave me an excuse to sleep over because it was my evening. It was the afternoon. They were, they were European uh, VCFM. And so I said, okay, you know, uh, I got it. You know, it's now 11 p.m. for me. I'll get back to tomorrow morning. Right. Um, so I also had 6,000 in the morning when I woke up to think about it. Right. You say, and uh, yeah. Good thing. yeah, yeah, it's good. It's, it's 24 hours was very important. And so I go uh, once more, you know, over the, the, the term sheets and, and kind of all the process. And I realize that I don't want this deal. I don't want it. And uh, I don't want this investor. And uh, so, but I have no other investor. I mean, I, I mean, he's the, you know, they're the lead investor. Right. Okay. I have other investors, but if I basically don't do the deal with this investor, I don't know what's going to happen to others. I mean, well, you know. Right. That's a very precarious situation because of the other investors are not prepared to put more in, but if they lose the lead investor, then their investment becomes much riskier because now there's a huge chunk of capital that's not being injected that needs to get black- injected in order for them to feel comfortable again. Right. Absolutely. So here you go, right? You know, we are almost there. All I need is to sign that thing. Mm-hmm. So there's something that I negotiated so hard that they agreed to, but I decided not to do it. What was they, did they try to sneak something else into the terms or? No, it was just too painful. It's just to painful. arrive to that level. And I said to myself, what if I am in a different situation now that the company exists and I'm going to have to negotiate again with them. Right. And, uh, and is this really the, the, the culture, the type of investor I want in the cup table or not? Right. And I realized that I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly back to square one, no money for hive. <laughs> And despite the fact that I had all the money I wanted. Um, and so, you know, the, the call when they woke up was not an easy call to make, um, to, to explain it, and then I have to figure out what I'm going to do next because I have to start from scratch. Uh, so yeah, that was, a, that was a low point. Yeah. That, those can be very difficult decisions that we have to make as founders, uh, but keeping that long-term vision in mind and, and I a hundred percent empathize with wanting to retain control of the company, because if you retain control of the company, you retain control of your, you can execute against your vision. Right. Uh, but if it's an arm and a leg and twisting and is it really the optimal partner? Cause when you pull in an investor, it's not just capital that they bring, right? It's supposed to be. The network and the support and maybe a couple customers and initial traction and advertising and help with the marketing or even like the security of the whole thing. So. And on top of that, the judging. And the judging. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so, you know, one day, uh, was at Microsoft, um, 
and we were in a very tough negotiation with an organization, a very, very tough negotiation. I mean, I was the one instigating the, the, the break of a massive contract, which I felt that, um, you know, was against Microsoft. And, uh, and so, um, we are going in this, uh, in this negotiation, you know, with the top lawyers and everywhere, but I am the business lead. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, we arrived to this point in which for me, I'm just not going to continue. I, uh, I'm not going to do this deal. I'm saying that I'm just too tired. I'm not going to steal. Doesn't go the way it should go. Mm -hmm. And so I go to my boss. I say, you know, uh, Bob, his name is Bob. Said, Bob, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to walk away. I'm not doing this deal. And he looks at me and he says, David, you are now ready to do the deal because you are ready to walk away. Uh, and <laughs> you, you mean walk away from your role with Microsoft? Yes. To be totally clear about this. Yes. I was, and, and he said, now you are ready to do the deal. And now you're ready. Okay. Yes. And, and, did and I didn't understand what he said, but it took me, I don't know how long, but it meant that I had nothing to lose anymore. Right. You see? At that point, suddenly, you know, all of the, the artificial, you know, constraints I put left and right, uh, in my decision process gone. Mm -hmm. And I just could do whatever or what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's exactly the same thing that happened with Hive. So when that situation happened, I said, okay, what? Well, I'm not going to do Hive. I don't care. You know? Not doing it. If I if it's not gonna happen the way I want, I'm not gonna do higher. Right. And so that that gave me somehow the courage uh, to to say no and to to say okay, I'll do it only in the right condition. At least I gave myself, you know, this out. Right. Uh, uh, and I think that was critical. It, you you speak from a position of power uh, when you respect yourself. You know that. And you acknowledge that, like, these are small, I mean, maybe they're not small problems to face, but there's, it, you put it into context, you know, and you remind yourself like what really matters at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That can be very empowering. A hundred percent. David and I, we both ride motorcycles. Um, it's a very dangerous, uh, endeavor. Often I've had some very close calls. And so I count all of this as icing on the cake. Um, sometimes I use that experiences just as a, as a similar reminder. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, and I you know I have obviously one regret we haven't written, um, you know, many times together. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we will, uh, we will fix this. Like, yeah, we have to, we have to. Absolutely. I look forward to that too. We'll do some spectacular, perhaps longer rides through Europe or. Have you done it? Any time in Europe. I mean, you know, um, there are some beautiful passes and, uh, and, and areas of Europe. I want to go like from, from like from Tan where I am, uh, you know, in summer times all the way to, uh, to that Northern tip of Norway. There we go. Like, so if we step back and we look at this bigger picture and through this lens of the bigger picture. You fast forward into the future and I'll let you decide how, 
how much we would like to fast forward into the future for this. But you look at that future and you see a smashing success for highs. Can you, can you help us see like what that is for you? The moonshot? The moonshot, yeah, your North Star. Uh, well, high becomes the fabric of our digital lives. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in every device. It takes um, um, care of uh, giving us privacy. Mm -hmm. It takes care of uh, giving us means to uh, have a uh, sustainable use of digital resources that um, we love to use or we have to use. Mm -hmm. um, it facilitates um, uh, the uh, solving of massive, uh, you know, concrete problems uh, that humanity faces as we need to progress science. Uh, because we have, um, you know, billions of computers and only 20 million of uh, servers in data centers around the world. So, you know, imagine you could put a billion computer together to work just for four hours, you know, to solve a particular, you know, I don't know genome problem or, or a particular math problem. Um, like Riemann hypothesis verification. And, you know, you, you, we could make maybe leap forward um, in uh, in the way humanity survives, in the way humanity thrives, um, and offers new doors. So, uh, so that for me, for me, the biggest uh, uh, reward. No, I, I love it. Um, very inspirational. Uh, makes me want to go off and look to see if you have any job openings. <laughs> That's <laughs> always. Do you have job openings for security experts? Okay, well, and, and you did mention privacy. Yes. Oh, I'm obsessed about privacy. You're obsessed about privacy. I mean, when I when I put my data on someone else's computer, or when I, when I run a very sensitive program or, or some compute on someone else's computer, I, I am thinking about privacy. How how do you see, let's double click on that just for a second. What, what's that, what's that story? What's that piece of the story look like? Before we go on the mechanics of that, I think we need to think about, we need to understand what's the, what's the current situation. I, right. You know, the atrocious current situation. Yeah, yeah. The current situation is, um, is an anti-private as you can imagine it could be. Right. Uh, so this is where we use. Um, services from the Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and a few others like Box and Dropbox, yep. um, in which the, the, our personal data okay, gets stored um, in the property of these companies, and we subject that data to their commercial needs. And so yep. they make money in two ways. They make money in one way, which is they sell subscription services, mm -hmm. individuals or corporates, mm -hmm. um, or they sell free services in the hope that you can upgrade to a subscription service. Um, and regardless of, you know, which, um, path you take on a commercial basis, that data is used to uh, generate revenue for these companies, um, and increasingly for machine learning. And we are therefore a product at their service. And so, um, furthermore, um, they are subject to US Cloud Act. And uh, any data that is 
part of uh, their infrastructure um, without your knowledge can be used, uh, you know, against you uh, or um, any investigation by any any U.S. authority. Um, and uh, and so we literally have no privacy. Like it just does not exist. Right. And if you were to read their end user license agreements, the EULAs, it's pretty explicit. They're not lying to you. They're just saying, you know, bluntly, your data is ours. We can do whatever we want with it. Don't put your data in our system if you care about privacy. Don't put your data in our system if you think that your data is, needs protection because we don't guarantee it. Right. Okay. So that's the lay of the ground. Um, I think that's not okay. I, I, I just, I, for me, there are a number of things which are great with the cloud and there are a number of things which are wrong with the cloud. And this is, I would say, by far the first one. And so for me, building high isn't only trying to take advantage of this end-use capacity of computers and using computer technologies, but it's mostly building a cloud that's better mm-hmm. for us as individuals and corporate. Mm-hmm. So uh, privacy is built in into the DNA of the company. and. Uh, so it's entirely zero trust system. Now, if you want to double click into this, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's full end-to-end encryption. Um, there is a master key that you create that gets stored into your local secure vault of Windows and Mac. Mm-hmm. And uh, you forget it, you know, it's screwed. There is no way to recover it. And from there, we derive um, from this root key. From there, we derive subset of keys. And um, those keys are only known to you and only you. We can never, ever, ever access to it. Um, and then we encrypt data and metadata. So anything that goes into the infrastructure, um, anything that goes into the internet, anything that is stored in your computer or for of someone else's data is uh, impenetrable. Um, mm-hmm. Not only by the virtue of this encryption, we use AES-256. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is this post-quantum uh, resistant, uh, you know, certified algorithm today. And, uh, but we generate a new key for every chunk of data we create. So we take a data, we cut it in size of 64K, uh, mm-hmm. and then we compress it. And, um, and then that compressed file is then encrypted with a different key each time. And so nice. and it's sharded in yep. 1,000 si- in 1K sizes, and then it's you know, distributed across the network. And so the data that you might host for me, maybe you know, 3K of my you know, uh, one gig file, uh, that 3K, even if you were to be able to access that, there's just nothing you can do with it. Right. No, I love it. So it means that the places that my data ends up will never, never, never be able to access that data directly because I'm the one controlling the key and all of those direct keys from that one key that's encrypting. So this is better than the Googles and the AWSs of the world today because that key is actually controlled by them in their cloud. And of course, I'm sure they do some encryption, but they're, they're also controlling the key. And this puts me as the user, the owner, of the day. I prefer the, the word owner because it is my data. The owner of my data is encrypted on my local machine before it's 
sent up and out and distributed uh, across the Hive network and, and maybe even used for, for compute operations too. So perfect. That's, that's great. I love that. Let me, let me ask a follow-up question. If, yeah. you, if you don't mind, like one, one more double click. The, uh, so if, if there's a smashing success and Google comes to you, David, tomorrow and says like, oh, we saw yesterday you released uh, this thing. It's going to fit perfectly with our vision of, of how we want to move forward with how we run all of the services in Google. We're going to deploy all of our services on top of Hives. The data that ends up inside Hive through Google. Through my use of Google, could could that still be encrypted using my key so that Google doesn't have visibility? Maybe like there's the only way to do it. I'm just there, we are not going to do it any other way. Uh, it, it's just not designed nor desired uh, to do it in any other way. Uh, uh, okay, this, I, I like the future. Yeah, this is a good future. Immutable features of of Hive, mm -hmm. um, and this is. I would say absolute one, no deviation around that. I love this vision of the future. Thank you so much for sharing, not just sharing your vision of the future, but making it, uh, bringing it to fruition too. Let's go back to your job board for a second. I remember when you interviewed me, it was actually one of the best interviews that I've ever had. It was very unexpected, <laughs> very unexpected, but most delightful. And, um, and so that leads into this question, which is, do you have a favorite interview question or questions? <laughs> yeah, I have questions. Can I, can I get more than one shot? Like, sure. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, well, the, the first one I always ask, you know, after getting to know the person, um, is if you have superpower, what would that be? Mm -hmm. I really like that. Um, the second question is, I send you back in time with all the knowledge that you have, you will not forget, you know, whatever, you know, you know, you have right to go back in time, pick, first of all, pick the age that you want to go back in. So that's the first question. Okay. And then why? Yeah. And the second question is that now that you have all this knowledge, what are you going to do with it? What, what, I'm super curious, what time period would you go back to if you, I'm sure you've thought about this. Of course. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> uh, for me, that will be when I was 14, 13, 14 years old. Um, we left, uh, we left Middle East, uh, when my dad retired and we moved to Cannes. Yeah. And, uh. And, you know, I, I wish I had, I know what I know today, uh, and, uh, and, and go back and, uh, and correct a few things uh, that, uh, <laughs> that needed correction back then. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, no, that's spectacular. That's, um, awesome. So you'd be part of the change that you want to see in the room. I, I feel like that's just part of the journey that we're all, we're all on as, as entrepreneurs, right? So I think we like change. I think that's the, one of the, 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 the essential elements of entrepreneurship is that you, 
you are a change agent. You know, you embrace, you promote change. Always was there. A catalyst. So mentally, that's, that's really what we are after. Right. Right. And having that playful sense of empathy to help answer that question, like, what does it mean to have a better future? Yes. Right. Do you have any other interview questions that you enjoy? Well, I got plenty. Um, I'm not going to go through the, you know, what's our, our strengths and all those things. Yeah. I, I tell you, I tell you, <clears throat> actually, for, for me, when I interview someone, I honestly don't care about the skills interview. Um, the reason I don't, it's not like I don't care. Mm -hmm. Uh, is because I assume that I have a resume here mm -hmm. and somebody who is, um, coming with some experience right? and, um, I can always do reference check mm -hmm. that, uh, it's very hard to lie, uh, and, and survive, uh, you know, first or a week or two in your job, uh, if you're not skilled, you know, you are going to get, uh, ejected very, very fast. And so no need to bother on that kind of stuff. Now in the engineering universe, there are a bunch of coding tests and et cetera that people make. Um, it is what it is. Um, for me, that is not actually what defines a good hire. It's not a skill hmm. because I have made so many mistakes of hiring the best skilled people that I was could be jealous of because they were so good, right. but they screwed the entire project because of the problem of who they were, not the problem of what they did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so therefore my focus is the person and not the skill. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my questions are always around understanding the person. And most importantly, and I can't in an hour to get, you know, an idea of a person, it's too short of a time. Sure. Whether they have self-awareness and, um, and a reality, um, which is not distorted mm -hmm. so that, um, they can improve and they can change. Growth mindset. Growth mindset. So that's what I am after when I interview someone. Does this person has this capacity or not? And if they do, no matter who they are, they will become better. It's true. You can learn new things. Yeah. You can, I mean, technology is always changing anyway. You better be able to learn new things, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, I, I'm not done learning. There's so many things out there. So I'm, I, I'm optimistic that I think most people, uh, share that, that mentality. So most people do, there are a few who don't, and, and you need to find ways to, you know, filter them out from, from the company you are building. Yep. It's, it's, you know, it's that passion. It's the drive. It's the one thing that I don't know how to teach somebody. And I don't know, like, it has to come from inside you. You have to want it. It's like a hunger. Almost. John, I think everybody has it. Everyone has it. Everyone. I think it's just not necessarily applied to the, to the job that they're interviewing for, right? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
I don't know. Imagine I'm, I, I don't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. Now, if you were to hire me for one of those companies, right, you know, who are doing manufacturing and selling those goods, honestly, you will not find me passionate. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's going to, I'm going to come flat and uninteresting. Okay. Because I just don't have a passion for that. Some people do, and that's perfect. As long as that passion and skill matches that the domain in which they, they want to work in. Right. And, um, and I think as an interviewer or as, as a hiring manager, our job is to make sure that in, for the respect of the people who we live with in this adventure and for the respect of this individual who wants to join us, that we make the best match possible. Um, because if not, this person suffers and we suffer. That's right. But when it's a, it, when it's a good match, like both benefit. And this is why no, the two fly together. Yeah. Fly together. I like that. Very nice. No, thank you for sharing. If, if you think about your experience, maybe with Hive, maybe with Symphony, and you fast forward a little bit into the future, is there one tool or service that you're just dying to have show up in the marketplace that you've never, I don't know, maybe never had the interest to build, but have always needed or never had the time to build, but it has always needed. This is a little bit of a leading question for entrepreneurs who listen to this and are, are playing around with. <laughs> I'll show you something. These are my bills of my trip into New York. Like these are all of these. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, so I have to go through each one by one one and file it so that, you know, the expense claims is done. I want to get rid of this. You want to get rid of those? I want to get rid of this. There's really no reason. Right. In a world in which I have Google, Apple pay. Yep. Right. That you have to make really expenses. Yeah. This doesn't automatically go into my expense. Why will I have to get those things print, you know, not print and I have to go and scan it and attach it and all this stuff. Such a waste of time. I'm going to spend probably an hour, an hour and a half just to do that at the end of this trip. But as long as somebody has access to Apple pay APIs and Google pay APIs. Yep. And you can build a UI on top of that. Like imagine a scenario in which, you know, I, I make a payment, you know, it goes through and then puff, I have a pop-up that comes from, you know, the, the native experience. Is it business or personal account? It's a business of a personal expense. It's expense. And this thing knows I'm in a trip and wow, we're done. I mean, you know, that, that will be such a, such a lifesaver. Would you switch carriers if it only showed up on this, like, uh, on an Android? Switch from Google to, uh, Apple or, yeah, I would. Yeah. I mean, as long as I do business, because mm -hmm. you know, you travel and, and you have these expenses, yep. uh, in, a, in a personal life, I'm not sure if that would be uh, a good reason to switch, but, uh, maybe there would be utility. Maybe it's for tax benefits. I don't know. Maybe. Yep. All those, all, that's a very good idea. I, I love that idea actually. So. Yeah. David, it's been do a it. yes, please do it. Please don't hesitate. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining on the show of the security podcast in Silicon Valley and sharing uh, just a little bit about 
uh, your great experience and your adventure along the way and some very personal stories. Thank you, John. Um, plus, uh, fun, engaging. Uh, I enjoyed the questions and enjoyed the interactions. It's a great opportunity. I'm looking forward to riding with you uh, one of these days, uh, you know, in Europe or elsewhere around the world. We, we definitely will ride together. Would you like to leave our listeners with any final uh, pearls of wisdom or perhaps advice that you could give to your younger self? I have only one. Um, don't be afraid. Let's go for it. All right. Well, thank you for everyone for tuning in. And don't forget to catch the next episode as well. Thanks.